With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. probably heard tell about the Gabby Petito situation, the tragic story of yet another young woman killed. It sure looks like there's a domestic violence component. The boyfriend that people think is probably involved, if not guilty of the crime, we'll have to see how it plays out, but he is on the run. His family has clearly helped him on the run. There's a manhunt, and it's just become the latest viral true crime missing person story. But there's something very interesting that happened when the Gabby Patino story broke nationally. The national news media finally got a hold of it after the family of Gabby had tried to get traction and local reporting had done quite a bit of good work on it and the story goes national. But then something happened. There was a big backlash. A lot of people started pushing back and saying, well, what about all these other missing persons? There was talk about people who didn't have families to advocate for them, people that weren't very online people like Gabby Petito was, who was a well-known blogger and van life person. And people also brought up things like other racial groups. What if they're not pretty young blonde girls? What about these other people that are missing? The public pushed back and something very interesting happened. Almost every news organization and outlet within hours or at least by the next day started having these cut and paste copy stories of, well, Gabby Petito has gone viral, but what happened to all these other missing persons? Isn't that interesting how that happened? There's a story here beyond just the terrible tragedy of Gabby Petito that we should learn about how media works, but we've got the perfect person to talk about what stories do and do not get covered and why. Her name's Molly McCluskey. She's a good friend. She is a very well respected and well known investigative journalist. She's written everywhere from the Atlantic, City Lab, National Geographic, Rolling Stones, New York Mag, you you name it, she's been all over the place. Very well respected. Somebody who really knows how these things work because she's an investigative journalist. She immerses herself in the stories, especially missing person stories. She wrote one a couple of years ago. And the story of what she went through to both investigate, to try to bring that story to publishing, and what happened with some of these very same outlets who are raising the what about these other people stories in light of the Gabby Petito situation, Molly's going to be the perfect person to talk about these issues with. How journalism is different from news media, how we should use those terms, what it says about the audience and what we should do as a responsible audience to try to consume better media and picking out which journalists and news media outlets are doing good work and which ones are just chasing trends. This is a very important topic, not just the Gabby Petito situation, but how each and every one of us get information. It's like we always say on Tell, we want to turn down the noise of the news cycle and get to the information. This is going to be a perfect example of it because Molly McCluskey, well-known investigative journalist, is going to talk to us about the Gabby Petito situation, a story that you really need to hear about out on the Crow Reservation of missing people and how hard it is to get those stories published. It's Molly McCluskey on Her Tell right after this. And I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Uh, an amazing journalist and a really good friend and somebody who's uh, kind of been there for me learning the ropes on this media stuff. Molly McCluskey, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me on today. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you for a lot of reasons. One is I've just always wanted to talk to you anyway. Uh, but I think you're going to dovetail to some of the current events with the Gabby Patino story and these missing women stories. But let's let's start with some nomenclature because I want to make sure everybody's on the same page because I think it's very apparent in our society that our media and journalists don't always speak the same language as uh, the masses do. So let's start with some nomenclature. I'm guilty of it, too. I've done it, too. We talk media and journalism like they're interchangeable terms, but they're really not because we're usually referring to like broadcast media or TV media or a major media outlet like, you know, Washington Post or something like that. That doesn't necessarily dovetail with journalism, and it doesn't really show the diversity in journalism and media we have right now, does it? No, it really doesn't. And, you know, I like to think of the terms media and journalism the way one might associate government and military, right? There is no real such thing as 
military as a blanket term. We intrinsically know that there's a difference between a naval commander, which is what my father was, um, and a gunny sergeant, and you know, a marine, and the different types of branches and jobs and ranks. And they're all just, you know, a PIO is going to do a different job than somebody working a battleship. I mean, they're just all different jobs and different roles. And so, and obviously when you look at government as well, there's state government and federal government and local government and they, everybody just does a different job. And so I am a traditionally trained print journalist. I'm not somebody that's going to be on TV very often. I do the occasional radio piece, but I am a writer by trade and I am a features and investigative journalist. So I am not somebody necessarily that responds to breaking news very quickly. I'm not somebody that's banging out a blog post as you know, a big story is developing and you're trying to get it out in 10 minutes before the competitor does. I'm somebody that will spend days, weeks, months, and in some cases, like this case, years on one particular story, really diving into it, trying to get to the nuance. So as I tell my friends, I'm not someone who goes in to cover the war. I'm someone who will go in six months later to cover the rebuilding and the aftermath and the community and how they're responding and recovering from the war. That's the type of investigative and features reporting that I do. And the part of that that's really different that people don't understand is that's a completely different business model than broadcast journalism. The reason they're chasing trends and clicks and breaking news is because that's their business model. You get your funding and you find your outlets in a completely different way, and that does affect how your stories come out and what stories do and do not get covered, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's interesting when you watch broadcast news, if you know how often they refer to a piece of print journalism. Right. Um, if you're watching MSNBC right. or Fox News and they're talking about, oh, this story that broke out of this town, they're often referring to original field print reporting, people that are knocking on doors and going and talking to people in their community which is the type of journalism that I came up with. I was a small town reporter in Skagway, Alaska. Uh, it was, a, you know, I like to joke that it's a town of, you know, 800 people and a couple of goats. There's no goats, but you get the sense. Um, and it was the kind of reporting where, you know, if somebody didn't like your story, they would come knock on your door and have, you know, have you over for tea at their table and tell you why they didn't like your story. And there's a certain type of accountability with that that I feel is not always um, present in all branches of journalism today. And an important waypoint before we get into the national story and how national stories are covered, though, one of the major cultural shifts that I don't know a lot of people really realize is kind of, and it's been a little exaggerated, but the death of local media over the last 20, 25 years, you know, there, there just isn't as much local print media, local, even television media, everything's kind of gone to a national trend in a lot of ways. And that has changed not only journalism and not only media, but it's kind of changed society in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean, when you have people reporting on your community from your community, right? It's a different perspective than what we call helicopter journalists, which I've been guilty of myself. Um, I've tried not to do it as a practice, but that's basically when you fly into somewhere, drop in, cover it and leave without a lot of context. Um, when I was a foreign correspondent, I would live in the town that I was covering. I would rent an apartment and I would spend three to six months there and base myself in different places. Because to me, the idea of really being in a place you, you can't trade that for anything you to understand the rhythms and the cultures and the way people you know hang out at the market or talk a certain way and and to really understand it, it adds so much nuance i think you know you and i have talked about this before it's one of the things i really try to include with my reporting is to really give people a sense of the place that this is happening stories don't happen in a vacuum they happen with people and locations and the history of, uh, you know, the context of, of where it happens and why it happens. So when something like the Gabby Patino story hits where it's, um, and it was the family that kind of drove it and then it caught on and then it went viral and then the national outlets grab it. 
when you're talking about helicopter journalism, that seems to almost be the model now instead of picking up, you know, the local guy or, you know, the network news goes to the local affiliate to get on the ground reporting. It seems like this is almost kind of the model of a lot of stories now, not just missing person stories, but just stories in general. It kind of went viral. The national outlets grabbed it, and then everybody swoops in. When you're talking helicopter journalism, this is kind of a pretty good example of that, isn't it? Well, I will say a lot of the local outlets um, from Long Island, where Gabby is from originally, and from um, Florida, where they are you know, on the ground trying to find Brian, uh, her fiancé, the local journalists are still on the scene. But yes, there are a lot right. of national reporters going in as well. And you know, that's such an interesting story, because here you have a very young pretty blonde woman who goes missing. There's a lot of really weird aspects of the case. Um, there's obviously the domestic violence and the domestic disturbance issue. There's police accountability. I mean, we know she had that stop in Moab, uh, which is a town I used to live in, by the way, I was a um, intern park ranger at Arches. And so I know that community pretty well. Um, there's the van life you know, movement, which is really part of the community that really rallied to help her um, her remains be found, but also, you know, she's a young woman who lived her life online. And so other people that also lived their lives online were personally invested in this and in a position to amplify. I mean, you and I have talked extensively about our love-hate relationships with social media and what the balance is and when we need to take a break, but we're of a certain age that is not a 22-year-old, you know, trying to um, who's finding her way in the world and traveling cross country with a partner that she's had a troubled history with by all accounts. So, you know, it, it was primed, I think, to t take off. It had all these different elements in it. And as someone who, you know, in my younger years, A, was in some kind of questionable relationships, but also spent a lot of time driving cross country and kind of living the backpack tenting kind of lifestyle, it, it captivated me as well. But yes, she, as tragic as this is, is one person who got a lot of attention. She is a certain person of a certain privilege who is voted in certain communities, do get a lot of attention. And there were and are a lot of people in Wyoming and in Florida and New York and throughout the U.S. that don't get this kind of attention and vanish without any kind of attention. And it's not because their families aren't looking for them, and it's not because their community doesn't love them, and it's not because they're not wonderful human beings that deserve to be found. It's because of the way these things are set up um, that they're getting they're getting ignored, which is really tragic. And we're we both have done some editing, and we both I'm not a journalist, but I because I'm a writer, I do some journalist adjacent type stuff. We understand how this works, and and even the general population picked up on it when you looked at social media of the, when the Gabby Petito story went national, and then there was a little bit of a backlash of, oh, there's all these other missing people. It wasn't hours later, and the next morning, every single outlet had what I we kind of derisively called cut and paste pieces. Every single one of them had, oh, well, there's all these other missing people. This is why I really wanted to talk to you, because... You've been on that end of it where you've had those stories and you were trying to get them out. How, before we delve into your story of getting those out, though, how much of that is fair criticism? How much of it is just the media environment we in? Is, is it really a pick and choose thing? Because part of it, too, and I think it's fair to bring it up, is the audience because they are, it is. you know, it's what we're consuming as consumers, too, that they're reacting to, not just the media. Uh, which part of this, how do you parse that out? Who, who, Where's the blame lie there? How do you parse that out? Wow, that's a really big question. <laughs> no, Sorry. It's okay. We don't ask easy questions. Uh, I was looking for an easy one. You're a pro. You'll be okay. Um, I, I don't feel that I can speak to the entire, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I am a white woman of a certain age with a certain amount of privilege. I am not a member of these communities that are kind of struggling to get this attention. So, I, I don't feel that I can speak on behalf of them. I can say that I was surprised. First of all, to your question of how much of the criticism is fair, all of it. It is all fair. It is all justified. It should, that criticism should be levied every day at every news outlet all the time. It is 100% fair. Um, I believe it was Gwen Eiffel who said the, who coined the phrase, the missing white woman syndrome, and that's absolutely correct. Um, there is a lot of attention to 
pretty young damsel in distress. We have this uh, collective racism and misogyny around this idea that one type of woman is, you know, requires protection. And if something happens to her, it's tragic. But those conversations aren't necessarily existing around preventative, um, you know, preventing domestic violence. We saw how it was not taken seriously when somebody called in that they had seen Brian hitting Gabby on the streets of Moab and it still wasn't taken seriously by the police that responded. I mean, there's this fetishization around a dead woman. It's how it happens. I mean, that's that's the reality. That, and, and as a writer, I know, and you know this, this has a delineated good guy, bad guy in it. With You have the abusive, allegedly, but, you know, let's call it what we're seeing. You have, the, you have an abusive boyfriend and the damsel in distress. That's just a classic story. Yeah that's going to take off every time you have it. Part of the story that we want to get into with you, the lines aren't that clean. And there's not that good, clean, good guy, bad guy. There's just a big wad of mess and missing people. And a lot of these missing person cases, they're more that. You don't get those clean cut lines of good guy, bad guy, missing, gone, do you? Oh, goodness. Well, I can really only speak to my experience of doing an investigation into the missing and murdered indigenous people of the Crow tribe of Montana a couple years ago. So I can't speak at large um, of how and why people go missing. I, that's that's a bigger story. Sure. That, you know, I'm not qualified to tackle. And there is no one answer for that, right? People go missing all the time for all sorts of reasons. And it's usually tragic. And there's no easy answer. I will say that when I was doing the investigation into this Crow tribe uh, story, I was really focusing on the historical failures of the US government, the policing, um, the BIA in treating these these missing and murdered people, right? So I didn't necessarily get a little bit too much into how and why, right? Because those things are complicated and but and they're and they're so different, right? So if we looked at each story, then yes, it would be a different st story each time. But if you look at how police fail to take these things seriously, that is a similar story. That is the same story across the board, right? Um, especially in you know, the fact of the Crow tribe, we had family members, like in many cases of missing indigenous people, but in missing people altogether, the family members were the ones that were going out and getting CCTV footage and, you know, piling it together and putting cases together and bringing cases to lawyers and police and saying, no, we like know what happened to our, our loved one. We have this footage, we have this information, we've interviewed witnesses. And even in those cases, police were not taking them seriously and not even filing report. And when you're dealing with something like the Crow Nation mm -hmm. out in Montana or any of the other uh, reservations or Bureau of Indian Affairs areas, uh, it's a different beast anyway because it is, it's directly under government control, but they're also self-sustained control underneath that umbrella. Kind of explain that dynamic sure. because even though it's, there's a universal thing with the police there, even how the policing and the judicial system inside the tribes is a little bit different. So just explain the, the ecosystem that's working in, because I don't think people really realize that this is similar and parallel, but it's not exactly the same. Sure. So there's no real easy answer to this. Each tribe has their own agreement with the federal government. The Crow tribe has, is, you know, a fully sovereign entity, much like they would be an individual country within our territory, right? So the Crow tribe in 1825 signed a friendship treaty with the U.S. And it's one of the few friendship treaties that exist like this. And it's pretty much considered like a NATO type agreement of mutual defense. But each tribe has their own relationship in terms of policing. Some have their own police, some have the oversight of the BIA, which is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But what's really important to, to note, especially in terms of when people go missing, this is where it gets really complicated, right? Because the FBI has jurisdiction if someone is murdered on, on, a, res, on a tribal land. But if somebody goes missing, you file a local missing persons report, either with the tribe or your local police or the BIA, depending on how your specific policing structure is set up. 
And then the BIA or, or whoever, whichever policing entity you're reporting to um, says, okay, well, it's a missing person. We're going to investigate uh, if they went missing on try if they were last seen on tribal land you know that's a bia thing but if they were last seen in a city or the local city um you know and crow is right by billings uh then it's a it's a billings police issue but they can say well it's a member of a sovereign nation and so that's not really our jurisdiction there's a lot of can kicking is what happens so one of the things to note though is that the major crimes act which was passed in 1885 it gave jurisdiction to the federal courts like exclusive of the states like the states have no say over native americans who commit certain offenses it doesn't matter if the victim is a native american or not and those offenses are, you know, murder, manslaughter, rape, assault with intent to kill, burglary, and a couple of others. And so before that, any crimes committed by a Native American against other Native Americans were tried in tribal court. And a lot of um, indigenous leaders today, especially the ones I spoke to in the Crow tribe, say that that act, that Major Crimes Act of 1885, is really what just started everything kind of sliding downhill. Because there, in addition to who goes missing and where, there's that issue of, well, who's the perpetrator? Where do they live? What is their jurisdiction? Are they native or non-native? And how does that all play out? And so in too many cases, people are just not investigating. If they do find the perpetrator and bring them to court, the courts are either tossing the cases out or giving really lenient sentences, if at all. I mean, it's really just horrific that there's not only the tragedy of losing this person that you love, but also that there's no, there's often no justice for it. The term you use in your piece um, was disempowering empowerment. Um, It almost sounds buzzwordy, but as soon as you think about it, you're just like, oh, that's just a, it's almost a gutting term. But what did you mean by that? And and how does that apply to these folks? Because when you talk about it sliding downhill, uh, again, like you said before, things don't happen in a vacuum. I always say things never happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Um, That disempowered empowerment came directly from the government and how they set all this up. Yeah, so exactly. So one of the things that law enforcement and again, I'm using that as a very blanket term to apply to all non-tribal policing, okay? Um, but one of the blanket terms they say is, oh, well, they're an adult. They just they just left. They just didn't like the res-. And this is where the really dark kind of classism, racism, elitism comes in of, well, living on the reservation must be so awful that they just walked off. They just left and they didn't tell anybody. And in the Crow tribe in particular, they're very close-knit. I was really moved. One of the things that they were sharing with me was that they have this process in the Crow tribe where you're adopted, right? So, you know, as someone who lost both her parents um, in life, if I was a member of the Crow tribe, I would have new parents. It didn't matter if I was 10 years old or 50 years old. I would now have elders in the tribe that would take me and make me part of their family. And that would go for aunties and uncles and nieces and nephews and cousins. And so you're never left on your own. You're never isolated. And so one of the things one of the leaders was telling me, it was like, look, if you like have a fight with your mom, it you don't run away. Like you don't, you know, take whatever $5 you have in your pocket and try to like hitch to Seattle. Like that's just ridiculous. You go up the street on the reservation to like your grandma's house. You don't just vanish. And so for law enforcement to just keep saying like, oh, well, they're an adult, they just left, was so inherently disrespecting the culture and showing a fundamental lack of understanding of this people that they were supposed to be policing and helping and servicing. It was such a slap in the face to say, hey, we've lost somebody. And, and this is so widespread on the, on the Crow Reservation and their neighboring Cheyenne Reservation that every person in the tribe has someone that has gone missing. That to me was what just really, it is not one or two people, right? It is every single person is impacted by this. There is no person that is left untouched by this void, this void of waking up and having someone that you love just be gone 
without a trace, without a question, without any support, without anybody, you know, outside of your community trying to help them find, without any media attention, without any TikToks, without any Twitter streams, without any of that, without CNN flying in, you know, and doing nothing against CNN, but like, and doing vans and, and whatever, um, they're just gone. And that I, as someone who has lost many people in my life, the idea that someone would vanish or be gone from your life and you don't have that information, right? You don't know if they're hurt, lost, um, being kept, being harmed, if they're, they're dead. I mean, one of the things that somebody said to me was every time a body is found, everybody holds their breath because, you know, the Crow tribe is this vast territory and folks that are east of the Mississippi or live in cities really cannot fathom how expansive these territories are. I mean, they're just absolutely, absolutely massive. Um, Crow is 2.2 million acres and has a population of fewer than 8,000 people living on the reservation. It is on this huge empty stretch of Interstate 90 that goes through, I mean, I've driven it in the morning and in the night and the day, and there is nothing there as far as the eye can see. You can, and you're on a major like thoroughfare in the United States and you, there are no buildings, there are no gas stations, there are no street signs, there's no traffic lights, there's just nothing. It's as far as you can see, it's nothing. And the fact that people are going regularly going missing and on it just this regular basis, I mean, it, it's continual and there's no answers or there's in some cases, there were alleged cover-ups. Um, in some cases, there have been alleged corruption of the local police. In some cases, of the non-tribal police. Um, in some cases, there have been, you know, accusations that BIA would rather sit on their, you know, sit on their chairs in their Billings office than go out in the middle of the night in Montana in the winter to try to take a statement on a missing person. I mean, it, there's complicated issues around just the geography and the landscape of the of this of this territory but it's all of the other interwoven challenges that have been designed to set up to really disenfranchise and disempower these tribes is is really just appalling going back hundreds of years since the US's founding you talked about how the type of investigating journalism you do you get rather immersed in your subject and you go there and you live there yeah. Talk about your responsibility, because when when you build a relationship with a subject like you do for these pieces, um, you these people have to let you in and they start to trust you, especially people with these kind of traumas. Um, what is your responsibility as a journalist? Because we, we hear a lot about journalistic integrity and we, we beat it around with things like politics and culture, but you're in these people's homes and then when you go to print your story or whatever, you know, you you carry responsibility because you've kind of given them their word that you're going to portray them a certain way. Talk about talk about that part of the process because a lot of people may not be familiar with how a journalist deals with something like that. Yeah. Um, so I will say that this story came to me. I didn't seek it out. Most of my big investigations have found me, and I tend to take that as a you know sign of some sort that I'm the person that needs to you know do this story. And so. I had been living overseas and I had been covering Europe's economic crisis. And when that became the migration crisis, I was covering that. And then when I moved back to the States, I started covering youth incarceration. And I did a whole series on, oh my goodness, that's, that series still kills me, but um, solitary confinement for children in youth detention centers and the psychological impact of that and lack of education and what it's like to being educated in youth incarceration and youth detention centers. and. And so I was doing this whole series for about kids in the U.S. being incarcerated and, and the ridiculous reasons why and the law enforcement kind of apparatus that's around caging children in this country. And I was on the board of the press club at the time, the National Press Club in D.C., and someone that I knew through the club came to me and sat me down and he said, listen, I've got a friend coming to town. He's got a leader. You know, he's a leader of the Crow tribe in Montana. His sister has gone missing and he can't get any like any help at all. Can you just talk to him? 
And I said, listen, I don't, I don't cover Indigenous affairs. I don't really like, I'll talk to him. Of course, I'll meet with him. Sure. Um, as his courtesy, but I, I don't know what I can do here. Like I'm a freelancer. I, I don't know journalists. I don't know editors in this beat. And as a freelancer, when you, when I take on a story or when I agree to a story because a source comes to me, I don't necessarily get editors that call me and commission me pieces. It happens sometimes, but that's not the way this, the world, my world works. What typically happens is I'll say, I've, a source comes to me and says, I've got a story. And I'll say, okay, hold that story. Tell me a little bit about it. I'm going to go reach out to every editor I know at every single publication. And hopefully one of them will say, yes, we'll run that story, write it, we'll pay you and we'll run it. And that can, that process takes, I mean, months, if not years. Right. So I didn't, I was really invested in the kids um, reporting and I didn't really want to dive into anything else. And I don't have, you know, sources or editors that would cover this. And so, and so I thought, okay, I'll just, you know, I'll meet with him. And at some point, maybe it'll turn into a story down the line, or I can fold it into another story. And so I, and this was CJ, who I talk about at length in the, in the article that you mentioned. And so I, you know, we sat in the little conference room at the press club and had like a 15 minute thing. And he was like, Oh, yeah, okay, my sister's gone missing. I'm like, that's really sorry. You know, I'm really sorry about that. And it's really terrible. And he's like, and my brother had also had a police encounter that resulted in his death. And I was like, Oh my God, that's like, how much bad fortune can one family have? This is really terrible. And he's like, no, you don't understand. And then he started to tell me about this epidemic and I was completely ignorant of it. I had no concept. I had no idea, you know, aside from what you learn in school about native affairs, which let's be honest, is very one-sided. <laughs> it is very limited and told under this idea of like America conquered the tribes, which is, terrible. I really had very little interaction. And so he said, okay, well, you should come out to Montana. And I didn't realize with that invitation, I realized it later, but that it is very unusual for a non-tribal person to be invited to the tribe in that way. And so I said, okay, well, you know, I'm working on this other story. Um, I'm wrapping up, I think I had a piece in the Washington Post about a police captain in Philadelphia that was trying to stop getting kids arrested. Because in Philadelphia, they were arresting children as young as 10 and like traumatizing them for life. So I was doing that story and I was like, I'll get back to you. And I started reaching out to news outlets and, you know, I, a bunch of places were like, oh yeah. And I was like, listen, like, people are disappearing. Like, how is this happening in this country, in this age of social media, in the age of police reform, in this age of mass surveillance? I mean, I can't walk down my street without knowing that I have 12 different, you know, different entities, surveillance cameras following me, right? Like, how is this happening? And so I started digging into the how is this happening piece of it and pitched a couple editors and I had one magazine friendly say, yes, we'll do it, go to the story. Um, and I should, point out that I paid for it out of pocket. Um, it went out to Montana for two weeks, interviewed everybody from the attorney general to local police to tribal members. I had a strange interaction with local police there too. So I know that they were aware that I was in town. Um, I was followed places. I spent two weeks out there, wow. came, came back and was like, okay, so now I have the field piece. I have sat there with people while they told me their stories of missing people and cried. I mean, the, the question of responsibility and integrity, right? When someone, when someone who is not part of your community trusts you, who doesn't know you, right? And CJ opened lots of doors when you're not part of a closed community and you're invited in and doors open everywhere and they open everywhere and they are vulnerable and they are raw and they are crying in front of you and tearing up as they're telling you about the last time they saw their loved one or the last phone call they had, or in one case, how they were, you know, had just gone to get Christmas presents and then they never came home for Christmas. I mean, you carry that. And if you don't carry that with you, I don't think you deserve to be in this line of work. I carried that with me. And I went back and I wrote the story and the news outlet was like, oh, we didn't think this is what the story was going to be. We thought you were going to tell us that white supremacists were murdering native women. And that's why they all went missing. 
And I'm like, well, like, that's, that's not the story that I wrote. The story is there's all these fundamental gaps in policing and we are failing this tribe as a country and the laws have been built to fail this tribe as a country. And that's the story. And it was originally like a 10,000 word piece that became a 3000 word piece. And, and they're like, well, we don't want it. I was like, okay, so now I have to, I have to go find a place for the story now. I, Andrew, every connection I had ever cultivated in my life, got an email from me, got a phone call. I was trying to give this story away. I could not, I was, I, I would not have taken, I was thousands of dollars out of pocket at this point. I would not have taken any money. I just wanted to get it out into the world. I thought it was so important. I thought, how can it be that all of these people are vanishing and nobody cares? And here I am, I have this story for you. I, it's, I have photographs, it's been fact-checked, it's web-ready, it's a packaged piece ready to go. I'm giving it to you for free. I mean, I reached out to Newsweek, I reached out to CNN, I reached out to the New York Times, I reached out to the LA Times, I reached out to the Seattle Times, I reached out to every favor I could have called in, every person that knew somebody. Um, and I, you know, that's, as a freelancer, I have a pretty decent contact roster. I was trying to give this away. I honestly think this was, and a lot of people were saying, oh, we'll read the story. That's great. Send it to us and we'll consider it. And they read it and they came back to me and said, no, I honestly think this was the most read story before it was ever published within our industry that year, because everybody was reading it and nobody was taking it. And then I finally found a second outlet to run it. Um, and I worked with an amazing editor. I still love that editor. And I don't want to name the outlet because I, it, I don't want to put her in an awkward position. We went through fact checking. We went through legal again, same thing. We went through fact checking. We went through legal. It was months. It was ready to go. They didn't use my photos. They grabbed some photos that I thought were actually like really insensitive and borderline racist. And we're grabbing some stock photos of tribes that were not crow and stereotypical imagery of non-crow tribes people in native dress and i'm like well this story isn't about that <laughs> this, these are not crow members and right. you can't just substitute in you know like it was a mess and then they had it and they're like okay we i fought them and it took months and we finally had a story that was ready to go and then they got a new editor-in-chief and the new editor-in-chief came from more of a pop it, clickbait style of, I don't want to say reporting because I don't necessarily think that's reporting, but um, of writing. And so I was, her job is basically the editor in chief is just to be like, okay, yeah, it's, it's fine. You've gone through legal. We've had, you know, all of this. And instead she went in and, and we were in a shared Google drive. And so I'm watching in real time that she was just going in and rewriting it. And in the act of rewriting it, she was putting in racist stereotypes she was taking out things she was changing things so that it was no longer factually accurate and to your question of integrity this was these were stories that had been entrusted to me and i was then entrusting it to this outlet and this outlet was not worthy of that trust and so i got to a point where i pulled it and so now we're a year on a year and a half on it still doesn't have a home these stories still haven't been told. I'm literally dreaming of these missing people every night. I had seen their photos. I had heard their stories. I think it is fair to say that I was haunted by them. I could not rest until this story. I stopped eating. Um, at one point, I you know stopped working on anything else except this. I moved out of my apartment and moved in with friends. I mean, this story consumed me and I reached out to CJ and I said, hey, listen, just a heads up, like I have not, because as far as they know, I just came and visited them and then never did anything, right? They don't know that this right. is happening on my end. And so I reached out to them and said, you know, hey, just a heads up, like I'm still working on this. This is not, I haven't forgotten you. This is still really important. And he said, that's okay. We're used to people not delivering on what they promise. And it just shattered me. I just, in a million pieces, it just absolutely shattered me. And finally found Al Jazeera, which I love writing for Al Jazeera. I've written for them on and off for probably about 10 years now. And got um, 
got an editor who immediately got the piece and got what we were trying to do and understood the importance of the story and gave the story the space and the time that it deserved. And of course we had to go through, you know, fact checking again and legal again and, and all of that again, which is totally fair. Um, but at that point, I think close to two years had gone by and, you know, we did some updates. I think I was ultimately paid maybe four or $500. I mean, nothing at this point, it really was not the money that was driving me, but the fact that it took that much both on the crow's part and on my part to get this story out there has fundamentally changed me. I mean, it's really just, how would you not care about that? How could you not care about that? Like I can understand in this day and age, local reporting, you know, the budgets are less. I know as a freelancer, the budgets have shrunk over years, I, I maybe get if you can say like, we can't send a full crew out to Montana for a month to do this story. Like, I, I understand that. But here I was, I had done the work. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an experienced journalist. I have a history of doing investigations like this. Hand, like gift wrapping and handing this big investigation and saying, I don't, you don't even need to pay me, like just run it. And, and they wouldn't. And that to me, when the Gabby Petito thing happened and when she went missing and all of the coverage, that was the first thing that I thought of was people are still going missing. They're going missing everywhere. And we've set, we've set it up so that it is not, it does not incentivize media outlets to do this kind of reporting. What really triggered my memory of your piece, besides how great it was, because I first read it, I don't know, probably two years ago now, but it was actually a picture in this piece, as great as your writing is, and you're a fantastic writer, uh, and it's a picture you took, and in a, and where we've spent the last two years of media being driven by pictures of protest from the performative and silly to the very violent and very historically meaningful, the photo of these folks, these tribal folks, protesting on a highway in the middle of nowhere, um, carrying their tribal flags, and there's only a handful of them. There's nowhere anywhere near them. This isn't for attention. There, I mean, this is this is something that, I don't know if you took it with your camera or your phone, but it, it's, it's, it, it just struck me when I started seeing the Gabby Petito thing, and I remembered that picture. And I'm yeah. like, those. that's not a protest for attention. That's a protest of, we don't know what else to do, but we can do this. And that's how it came across to me for those folks. And it's such a powerful image of there's nothing else they can do except just hold their flag and hold their hand up and march forward. And it was such a striking image. And it kind of brought it back to the Gabby Petito thing of what do you do when you when you have no hope? And you ended your piece in the, the piece in Al Jazeera of, you know, you got to give these people some hope. Where do you find hope? And that image those are people just making their own hope marching down the highway in the middle of Montana where there's nobody within 50 miles any direction, is it? Well, so the thing about that that was so fascinating to me is, you know, so we talk about Highway 90, which runs through, and it's the main thoroughfare. It's where all the trucks go, and it's all of that. But, you know, there's a second road outside of Crow. Um, there's 87, and then it's it's a two-lane highway, and a lot of the trucks, and it, goes, it turns into 212. And so a lot of the trucks kind of, do that road, right? Um, because it's, there's not, you know, state troopers waiting on either end of Crow Tribe, you kind of can do your thing, but it's a, it's a narrow two lane highway. And people have gone missing on that highway and they've been killed on that highway. And so these protesters, these marchers had, you know, three or four of them and a, a follow truck with a porta potty and then another follow truck with like the kids and the, you know, coolers and that sort of thing. And they had a BIA officer who was a member of the Crow tribe, and they marched through, Crow ter through Cheyenne territory, which is their neighboring tribe, to Crow. And Cheyenne and Crow have, you know, their history, right? At neighboring tribes with shared borders often do, but they have the same issue. And so they, they joined together to do, to do this march. But the thing that really just struck me was people had to slow down and go around them because there is, there was plenty of traffic. There's, you know, plenty of cars and trucks. 
and most people were respectful. Most people, um, you know, honked their support. A couple were jerks that you'll have anywhere, right? But there were these two motorcyclists and, you know, white men of a certain age, probably in their 60s. It's Memorial Day weekend. I think they were on their way to Sturgis and they were taking this road and they saw us and they pulled off up ahead and they stopped and they were basically just gawking, right? This was a tourist attraction for them. This was one more thing that they were going to see on their trip and that they were going to tell their friends about. And they basically stopped and waited at this little cutout on the side of the road for the parade, the protesters to catch up with them. And when we all joined them, I was incredibly uncomfortable. I was very aware that those men were looking for a spectacle, that they didn't know anything about these, this tribe. They didn't know anything about these missing women. They didn't really care. They just saw some really cool people with some cool flags. And so I was cringing. I was just, you know, and the reason the protesters stopped at that spot was because that was a spot in the little pull off on the side of the road where one of the bodies of one of the members of their tribes had been found years ago. And so they stopped at this spot for a moment of prayer and reflection and quiet. And this was a sacred space for them. And here are these two motorcycle guys just gawking at them. And rather than being offended and rather than being, you know, asking them to move along, they took the time, they explained to them what was going on. Then they invited them into their prayer circle. And after praying for the remains to be found of all the missing, either alive or not, and praying for the souls of the, the people that had passed away, which itself is incredibly moving, and I was very choked up, they then took a moment to pray for the safety of these two men on their journey. And I thought, God, that is grace. That is, I, that is humility and kindness and graciousness that I don't know that I would have in that situation. But they saw those two men as emissaries. They were gawking and they were tourists. But you know what? Those were two more people that were going to go out into the world and say, members of the Crow and Cheyenne tribes are going missing. And you should know about that. And so they took that opportunity as a gift and they took it as a means to continue to share their message. So that to me, when you talk about the integrity of reporting, that's this those are the things that I draw inspiration from, right? Is it's very easy in jur journalism to get caught up in the ego and the byline and the money, which there's not much unless you're, you know, at the, like the 10% of our field, but it's very easy to kind of track those things or to go after those things or to think that those are the things that show that you've been successful. I look at my body of work, and I'm really proud of some of the stories that I've done. And at the end of the day, can I say I did this story justice? I think that there is no justice to this story. Um, the fact that it's still happening, the fact that it's not covered everywhere means there's no justice to this story. I could spend the rest of my life writing about this story and there would still not be justice. I mean, until every single member is found and accounted for and every single perpetrator is, you know, held to account and every person that does anything against any indigenous person in this country and in countries around the world is held to account. I mean, that's justice. And I don't know that we'll have that. But at the end of the day, there was a story that I feel like I did my small part to get out into the world. And the fact that you know about it and the fact that we're talking about it, I have to take some sort of grace from that. Yeah. And it's what we talk about in our, our writing business. It's a it's not time sensitive. It's timeless. It's going to keep coming up every so often because there'll be another. Unfortunately, there'll be another Gabby at some point in the future. And then people will start digging again and awareness will come up again. And those stories will always be there because it's. Sadly, it's going to keep happening, but the fact that you cover it every so often, maybe somebody will come back and find it. That's kind of the hope when we write something like that, isn't it, of 
well, this is this is an ongoing issue, but at least if we can kind of put it out there, it'll keep coming up and people can find it as they go along in their in their journeys. And media coverage comes and goes. But like you said, these families are still there. It's still a problem. These are real people. But maybe when there's something like a Gabby comes up, we can talk about the broader issue and that it keeps happening over and over and over again. I think that's true. And I think, you know, Crime Junkie podcast recently just highlighted this investigation into an episode they did about missing and murdered indigenous people. And I would really highly recommend it. It was a, it was a really well done episode, but I think one of the things I touched upon in the investigation was I didn't just want to leave it as, Oh my God, all these people are going missing and there's no justice. The Crow people know what needs to happen and indigenous people across the world know what, I mean, they'll tell you, what needs to change. And, you know, it's the laws are set up to allow this to happen, you know, at the federal level and at the state level. Um, the tribes say, listen, if you let us manage our own economic development, if you remove restrictions on us prosecuting non-tribal offenders, because it's most of the time it's non-tribal to tribal, right? It's not within the community. If you look at the mutual defense and other treaty agreements that tribes have made with the US, because basically this is, they're under war is how CJ put it. They're, they're being occupied and they're under attack. And yet Crow members have gone and fought in, every, in Afghanistan and Iraq and every, every conflict the US has been in. Why is the US not sending like troops essentially to help them combat this issue? Um, if you reaffirm tribal culture, and we saw that again with the residential schools in Canada and, and the US, right? Um, reaffirm tribal culture to counter the fact that for decades, tribal people and indigenous people have been shamed by their culture and separated from their families. Um, if we end negative media depictions, which is something that I personally came up against as I was you know, reporting the story. I mean, these things are all contribute to this epidemic it's these things don't happen in a vacuum as you mentioned when you think about this overall story and i know it took a lot out of you and i really appreciate you sharing this because i know it's not an easy topic to talk about but it is important i think enough to try to sort through it um when when we just to put a bow on it with the gabby stuff when you see somebody disappearing in a montana or a wyoming or wherever it's at what would you say for the for the average consumer who doesn't have your journalistic instincts how to approach these kind of stories because there is there's always that sensational first little blast of stuff and then it starts trickling out how would you tell a normal person like here's how you should approach these stories so that you're not just respectful of the of the victims but you're also getting good information and understanding yeah. what's happening outside of just the noise of the news cycle and how to kind of discern through that from your experiences so I really appreciate that you put the onus on the readers. And I think there is certainly something to be said for being informed, educated consumers of media, right? But I think as journalists, we should be doing a better job. We don't provide enough context. We don't, and there, as you say, and as we started the segment, we said, you know, when the Gabby Petito thing happened within days, there were lots of stories about all the other people that have been missing that don't get attention. However, some of those very news outlets that were writing those stories were outlets that turned down the crow story when I shopped it and begged and tried to give it away. So we all need to have our own sort of reckoning within our industry about how, how we cover things and why we cover things and in what way we cover things. I mean, that, that itself is a long time coming and, and very long overdue. I always say at this point that and again, I'm biased because I'm a freelancer. So I have always thought of myself as my own media entity. I'm responsible to uphold, you know, the Society of Professional Journalism standards for journalists. I am responsible for treating my sources with integrity and honesty and fairness. You might not always like what I write, but you will agree that it's fair and true. And if it's not true, I'll make a correction. I mean, these are, these are the things that we do, right? So I would honestly encourage everyone, all readers everywhere, all consumers of any kind of media anywhere to stop thinking in terms of outlets and start thinking more in terms of journalists, right? 
and not necessarily just the celebrity journalists. We we have those in our community, and I have made a, maybe that's a thought for a different podcast. But I really think because news outlets do so much coverage, and because so many outlets are doing so many opinion pieces, and opinion pieces are often difficult to tell apart. They're not clearly marked from reported factual pieces. Like. I have opinions about the Crow Tribe's treatment now as a result of doing that story, but it didn't, I didn't go in saying, oh my God, the Crows are treated horribly and we need to, like, this is an advocacy piece. It was not an advocacy piece because I, I'm not an advocacy journalist. Um, but I think if folks take a little bit of time, rather than skimming the headlines every day, which I'm guilty of doing, I, I skim the same six or seven news outlets every day and get a sense of what's going on in the world, but really get a sense of individual journalists and the type of stories that they cover and how they cover, I think that's gonna be easier for folks because you'll know this journalist can be counted on to do this story in a certain way, can be counted on to be fair and true and if they make a mistake, they'll correct it which is a huge part of journalism that I think it, it lends itself to accountability is admitting when you make a mistake because mistakes do happen, right? Um, but I think to just say, I'm only gonna watch Fox or I'm only gonna watch MSNBC or I'm only gonna watch BBC or whatever, instead of I'm gonna follow Molly because I know she writes on these sorts of issues or I'm gonna follow Andrew <laughs> because in addition to Twitter Supper Club, he's doing these sorts of things and I understand the way that he works, I think having those relationships, even as readers to writers, is really important. And I think it, it'll help sort through all the noise because there's a lot of noise. I mean, there's so much noise and everybody's hopping on the noise. And there's very few, proportionally, proportionally to our industry, there are very few journalists actually going out and knocking on doors and doing field reporting and doing first person interviewing. I go absolutely crazy. It's one of my biggest pet peeves in my industry. I lose my mind and it's everywhere. When I read something that says, you know, reported by the Washington Post, according to sources who spoke to NBC, who first spoke to LA Times, like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that, no, like call the people on the damn phone. <laughs> like get them to talk to you. Like this aggregation thing where outlets are reporting on other outlets. And we talked about it at the beginning with broadcasts or you know, segments are talking about print pieces, right? This idea that there's only a handful of people actually doing field reporting anymore and investigative reporting anymore and sending away for government documents on FOIA and waiting for a year for them to come back and then reporting on that. I mean, look at what just happened with um, the Pandora Papers. That was this unprecedented you know, ICIJ and all of these journalists around the world and they were all collaborating and that's amazing. And those sorts of things happen, but that's the rarity anymore. I mean, that's like our Grammys for journalism. That's the big event when something that big comes out. So me personally, I don't read anything that starts in one news outlet, but according to another news outlet who spoke to somebody that's like, I just, no, I want actual reporting. I minimize my opinion pieces that I read as a general rule. I know which journalists, whether I know them personally or not, that I can really trust for their honest, fair, unbiased reporting of saying, hey, this is what's happening on the ground. I'm not gonna tell you how I feel about it because that's not my job. I'm not gonna go in and say this is right or wrong because that's not my job. I'm gonna go in and tell you what's happening and why it's happening and then whether you want to take action or not is up to you as the reader. Hmm. Uh, it's a great piece. Uh, we're going to link to it in all the show notes to everybody, and we're going to excerpt it too so everybody can find it and read it, and, and we'll be promoting it out. But on, on just a little bit of a lighter note to end all this, though, you don't just write on heavy topics. You, you have a delightful little thing that I just love to follow, but you have a habit of haunting embassies. <laughs> Um, and you, you've kind of made it into a, a little bit of a side hustle or a hobby or whatever you want to call it. But I, I love that stuff because I'm, I'm a history geek at heart. So anytime you get history meeting real life and someplace you can actually physically go visit, I'm all over it. But t tell folks just real quick about your, your embassy 
uh, shenanigans because I, <laughs> I enjoy them and, and you sir, it is for you what food is for me. And I appreciate the Twitter supper club plug because it's one of the great joys in life, but that that's kind of your Twitter supper club, ain't it? I, you know, I appreciate that you use the word shenanigans because I think the last profile I did, I was like climbing up on the roof of the Colombian ambassador's residence. So yes, I do stock embassies. I, as a fun- You are a Molly. We just need to point out for the record. So shenanigans, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I was, you know, living abroad and I was covering all these really hard, soul-crushing stories of, you know, hunger and migration and refugees and missing and murdered Native people and really just needed something light and fun. And so I started this newsletter called Diplomatica, which tells the story of different embassies in DC. Uh, most of the embassies, many of the embassies in Washington are in homes that were once private family residential homes. Many of them were built, you know, during the gold rush era. Some of them are haunted. Uh, some of them have crazy stories about the last hope diamond. I mean, they have these just insane, fun, crazy stories. And so I started this newsletter. I thought it would just be, you know, something that my cousins in California would read once a month and it wouldn't be a big deal and it kind of exploded. <laughs> And started that, and then it was merged with uh, a magazine for a while, and now we're kind of taking it back and revamping it um, going forward. But it is, uh, there's just been, you know, I mean, the last private home of Warren G. Harding before he became president and where he wrote all his love letters to his mistresses was one of them. And um, the home of that's now the de facto Taiwan embassy that was built by the founder of National Geographic, whose daughter married Alexander Graham Bell, and they still have the phone prototypes in the, you know, in the residential area, but it can't actually be used as an embassy because of our relation, our diplomatic relationships with China. I mean, there's just all of these really crazy fun stories. And so I do a fun narrative, long form storytelling that's foreign affairs and architecture and culture and just really kind of bonkers stories. And they let me go climb to their roofs and poke through closets and dig up floorboards and have a really fun time with it. I'm going to need a flow chart just for that explanation because <laughs> that covered... Man, you covered about, what, 130 years right there between Warren Hardy creeping around and <laughs> telephones. That's amazing stuff. Uh, but that's that's why we love you and appreciate you. You do great stuff. Tell folks where they can find your work, your social media, and other things, what you got going on so they can find you. Yeah, I'm mollyemccluskey.com is my website and my Twitter handle and just about everywhere on the web you can, you can find me. I'm not on Facebook. I'm only on Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, my website. But if folks sign up on my website, Website. I am going to be launching a new newsletter in the next few weeks, so I hope they'll stay tuned for that. Yep, Mighty Molly of the Fighting McCluskeys. Um, <laughs> I, I appreciate your time so much. We're definitely going to have you back on because um, media is changing so fast and journalism is changing so fast. I, I think you gave me about four or five episode ideas just in what you talked about today. So we're definitely want to have you back when you get an opportunity. Oh, I hope so. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. This is really lovely. Hey, thank you so much, ma'am. I really appreciate you. You know, the English poet and media critic Matthew Arnold once quipped, journalism is literature in a hurry. Well, if that's the case, then journalism has never been in more of a hurry than it is now. The modern world, like we talked about with Molly, is a lot of buzzing and a lot of viral and a lot of chasing it. Long-form investigative journalism, like what Molly did with the Crow Reservation, is kind of cutting against the grain of how modern journalism works, and especially how the modern media business model works. But it's also important because you still have to be able to dig in and get the truth of stories. Because it's her profession, Molly, of course, is big on journalism ethics and making sure journalists are held to account and that they're holding up the time-honored traditions of their profession. Well, those of us that aren't journalists, we have an important part to play, too, because we need to hold journalists accountable. But we also need to be aware of what they're doing and that there is a business model involved. And not only why they're telling stories, but who's telling the stories, like Molly was saying. We now have power through things like social media. We know more about our journalists and reporters and media figures than ever before. We can tell a lot more about what kind of people they are, their character, how they conduct themselves, at least in public for the large part. And we should factor that into how they do their storytelling. People build reputations like everybody else in journalism. 
You can follow them. They have a body of work. And we should be able to discern better and make a better media platform for ourselves to draw from. Better information starts with how you intake it. So we can't just blame the media for everything. It has to start with us, too, because if we're consuming what they're giving us, they're just going to keep doing it. And besides, what goes into your mind and your heart and your emotions and your feelings and what you put back out after processing all that information is on you and it's on me. So before we start throwing stones at the media, we have to make sure that we've got our own houses in order. And before we go finding missing persons or solving any other world problem, we should start with that. Because if we can't accurately intake, process, and apply information to our lives, we're not going to be a whole lot of help to anybody else. Journalism is important. It's not just something we should blast all the time. We need it. A free press was so important that the founders of our country imbued it into the DNA of our country. But it's not perfect, and neither are we. It's a relationship between journalism and the public and the government it covers and the issues they cover and the stories they cover that will always be in conflict. But like any relationship, it's worth it if we can all work it out. That does it for Heard Tell this time. We're very proud of these episodes that we're doing. Please share them with folks. If you can put them on your social media page, let folks know where to find it. Whatever platform you're listening to Heard Tell on, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, whatever platform you're on, if they give you the option to leave a comment and a rating, please do so. That's very important because that not only tells the platforms that we're worth their time, it lets other people know that we won't waste their time if they'll listen and subscribe. We thank you so much. As long as you keep listening, we will keep doing it. We enjoy topics like this where we get to turn down the noise and get to good information from people that know what they're talking about, like Molly McCluskey. Wherever this finds you, across the street or around the world, we hope you're doing well. Until we talk to you again, you and yours take care. We'll see you all next time. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.